Welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, Pod Squad members Tracy Carr and Louisa Whitfield Smith will be discussing their admiration of Mississippi native Lewis Norton. You'll hear the impact he had with seven published works on these two Pod Squad members. Also, you'll hear about a new initiative from the Mississippi Library Commission called Briefly Noted. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Tracy. And I'm Louisa. And we get to talk about something amazing and magical today. We do. We get to talk about Lewis Norton. It's going to be so good. It's going to be good. Uh, We are both super fans of the writer Lewis Norton. He was known to his friends as Buddy, and Louisa is a friend of his in spirit, so she always refers to him as Buddy. So um, You can't not. He's Buddy. Well, you know, I call him Lewis Norton. I mean... It's very proper. Of it's you. very proper. I'm I'm a very prim and proper person apparently when it comes to Lewis Norton. But he's a Mississippi author. Mm-hmm. He was born in Forest, grew up in Itabina, dreamed about getting out of Mississippi, then spent the rest of his career writing about it. Right. I read something this morning about how he would try to write about different things, and he always came back to a lake, and he said, "It's the geography of my heart." If he just talks like that, you know his writing is going to be amazing. If that's just like, hi, I'm having a conversation. It's the geography of my heart. You know, as one does when you're talking about Air Catcher, a.k.a. Itabina, Mississippi. Exactly. So he was born in 1939 and died in 2012. And I was looking at his obituary in the New York Times. And just because, you know, an obituary is a great place to just sum up someone's life work. And I just wanted to start with how they describe him. Lewis Norton, a Mississippi-born writer whose fiction conjures a dreamlike world that straddles the whisker-thin margin between a legend and a lie. That's perfect. I thought that was beautiful. And then Mr. Norton's fiction is characterized by a tall tale outrageousness that shades seamlessly into magic realism. Absolutely. Yes, all of that. So... When people ask if I'm, you know, saying how much I love one of his books, um, I always say it's beautiful, sad, hilarious, and weird. Like those four boxes are ticked with every Lewis yeah. Norton book. Absolutely, it's cussy and sublime. Like, yes, like it's strange. And I, we're going to talk about a new initiative we have here in Mississippi called Briefly Note It. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things that comes up in uh, the annotation we have for Lewis Norton's book. Music of the Swamp by the author Jimmy Cajolis is about how he turns someone's death into the setup for a punchline and a kid's birthday party into something that'll make you weep. And he really has this beautiful way of like the fullness of life. Like it's not just one or the other things. Right. It's not just death. It's also love and hope. And yes. despair lives with humor. So his there's a memoir that I don't like. I'll just say it. I don't like Boy the with memoir. Boy with a gun, no. not your thing. I do not. I pretend it does not exist. I read it <laughs> and I was upset afterwards. So I stick to the uh, what I consider the real books. Sorry, sorry, everyone. Wolf Whistle, Music of the Swamp, Lightning Song, Lightning Song, Sharpshooter Blues. Absolutely. Um, Welcome to the Arrowcatcher mm-hmm. Fair. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that's it? his very first one. And then he has the All Girls Football Team. Right. And then if you want to. I mean, you only get so much Norton and you got to savor it. But just right. in case you want to sample, you could start with the later collection of his first two short story collections where in one book called Sugar Among the Freaks. That's right. Which is a great title for a book. That is. That I just, is. he is so, okay. 
So in Music of the Swamp, for example, he decades get conflated and changed. There's so much truth. Like he himself had a stepdad who was a house painter named Gilbert. And in the book, there's a stepdad who's, or a dad who's a house painter named Gilbert. But the sort of beauty in Buddy is you never know what's true and what's false because it's not about the facts. It's about the emotional truth. Right. And I think that's why sometimes people struggle with Boy with Loaded Gun. Is you don't want to know the truth about Buddy. Right. You want him to tell you the truth. Right. I, I didn't want to know some of the things that now I know and I've been trying to put out of my mind. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just didn't want to know. I thought I did, but I didn't, I didn't want to yeah. know, Louisa. So you are a Music of the Swamp super fan. But before, I'm going to let you talk about okay. it for a second. But before, uh, Louisa talked about our, our project, Briefly Noted. And that's a project where we let some Mississippi authors and scholars choose their favorite Mississippi novel and annotate it with post-it notes. Get it? Briefly noted. (laughs) Um, The post-its are then replicated and placed throughout the book near the passages that they're talking about. And if it sounds complicated, like, how do you replicate a post-it note? Oh my gosh, it just took so long. I think it's a wonderful experience to pick up a book, you're reading along, and then all of a sudden, there's a little friend there Mm -hmm. who has written you a note explaining the passage that you just read, or asking you a question about like, well, how does that make you feel when this happens? And so... What were some of the titles that got highlighted? Yeah, Music of the Swamp was one of them. The author of Jimmy Cajolas, also a super fan. Oh, super, um, super fan. Did the annotations for that. And there are beautiful annotations. And I'll tell you, at the end, there's like a six post-it one where he just goes on because he has so much to say. It's a beautiful story, too. We also have Black Boy uh, by Richard Wright that is annotated by W. Ralph Eubanks. The Hate You Give, annotated by Ebony Lumumba, and Margaret Walker's Jubilee, annotated by Dr. Robbie Luckett. So we hope maybe I'll have those people on. We'll and do the, a podcast with all of them. I would love that. These awesome books with these annotations and conversations with other people who enrich your understanding of these books that have such strong ties to Mississippi have been sent out to libraries across the state. So yes. anyone there, can go check them out. There is a copy of all four of these in every public library. Now, I'm not saying that someone's not going to check it out, move those post-its around, throw the post-its on the floor, put their grocery list on the back of them. But hopefully they'll put them back where they found them and everyone can have that same experience. If you're interested, you should check out our website, which will have a link at the bottom of this podcast to the Briefly Noted website. Yes. that's Especially for those of you who might be listening who don't live in Mississippi but want to get into Music of the Swamp or yes, The Hate You all, Give. All you... of those annotations are available on the website. So you can just print them out and read along if you want to do that. And they have the page numbers too. Yes. So you don't have to actually print them on post-its, which I might have mentioned was very difficult. It was a labor of love. It was. But so tell us about Music of the Swamp and why you love it Mm -hmm. and just what it's about in general and everything you want to say. So Music of the Swamp is a novel told in a cycle of stories about a 12-year-old boy, Sugar Mecklin, in tiny Arrowcatcher, Mississippi, surrounded by death and alcoholism and really bad parental decision-making and cabbage patches and basements infected with swamp rats that are the size of, you know, a rodent of unusual size and opera singing girls ignored by society and just a lot of tragedy and beauty and difficulty. And it is 
heavily inspired by his own life, but you don't need to know that to enjoy it. And as Tracy mentioned, it might even hurt your enjoyment of it. And he takes all this and alchemically turns it into this cussy, hilarious masterpiece that in under 200 pages will make you laugh and cry and never forget it. I will also say, as a member of the Buddy Appreciation Society, it's informal, anyone can join it, that this is one of those books I fell in love with. I was lucky enough to get him, hear him read it when I was 11. Whoa. I know, at Millsaps. You got so, in at the ground floor. I did, I did. At the Millsaps Arts and Lectures series, I just want to shout it out. They've done the quality programming mm-hmm. in our state for decades. They had a program with Lewis Norton, Donna Tartt, and Reynolds Price all in one night when Donna Tartt had just written The Secret History. And so that was just one of those nights that shape your life. I love the book so much, I got him to sign two copies. I'm gonna read from one of them today. And it's one of those books that I can know someone for two years, know I really like them or I really love them, and then find out that they're also a huge Music of the Swamp fan. Jimmy, who did our annotation, talks about the fact he used to buy copies for a dollar or two dollars online just so he could give it away and proselytize the book. Mm-hmm. The head of the Mississippi Film Office, Nina Parikh, is a big fan. Local filmmaker, Philip Scarborough, and uh, former editor at the University of Mississippi Press, Walter Biggins, have worked on a, a shorts adaptation. Somewhere in the world, someone has the rights to Music of the Swamp. Please make this movie. I love it so much. And instead of me just explaining and talking appeal factors, I figured I'd read a sample. So in this passage, Sugar's Benighted Daddy, Gilbert, and his mama have decided to go on a little decided second honeymoon with their child in tow to a post-hurricane ravaged Redneck Riviera, Gulf Coast, Mississippi. And... It's a bad idea in general, but it's also magical. So I'm just going to give you a sample of what Lewis Norton's prose style is like. They're down on the Hurricane Ravaged Coast. We were a lonely lighthouse. We were a ship lost at sea. We were an outpost in Indian territory. We were one of the few places with a roof. (laughs) Mama said, it's so quiet. Daddy said, yeah. His voice was soft and a little frightened sounding. He said, it's definitely a quiet little place. Mock it down. My parents were not falling in love all over again. It's not that they weren't trying to fall in love. They were trying until they turned blue in the face. It was embarrassing to watch them. Daddy was right about that too. They said soft things. I just stayed out of their way. I just watched. I just slunk around and spied on them. They brought iced tea to bed with flowers on a tray. They ate dinner by candlelight on the front porch. Picture my daddy with 35 years of house paint underneath his fingernails and house paint on the freckled veined lids of his eyes, varnished permanent in the pigmentation of his skin his hair, the color of his eyes, my daddy with web toes on his feet and not one white tooth in his mouth, lighting candles for dinner for the first time in his entire life. It would break your heart to watch him. He was trying so hard to be in love, so desperate now that he knew he was not. Daddy said, listen to the deep voice of the sea tonight. He said this, this man who scarcely said hello on all other days of the year, and the sound of his own voice speaking language near to poetry, near to passion, scared my daddy so bad, he actually leaped straight up off the floor in the fear and ran out of the room and flung himself on the bed and cried for a full minute at the shock of it. Whenever I long for the return of my own innocence, I imagine becoming the person that my strange daddy was in that 60 seconds of his life. And then I have to admit that I was never so innocent, even as a child. No one on this earth ever was so innocent except him. My parents walked on the beach in the moonlight, stepping over strange things they could not see. They agreed on many things, including autumn as their favorite season of the year, and the smell of salt in the sea air. My mother was even beginning to be convinced that this might work, the second honeymoon in search of love. But then, love is cruel. I mean, why lie about it? 
so he he doesn't really speak, and then he has says this incredibly romantic yes. thing, and it just like wrecks him, and, and he has to him. run away and cry. And he writes, he's like, it's beautiful. And again, like one of the things in this book is about when people want to say something that really matters to them, and they just can't get it out. Yeah. Right. Or if they manage to, they have to go hide on the bed. <laughs> right. Or they bring their kids on their second honeymoon in a post-Hurricane Camille Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Yeah. So, like you said earlier, some, like, questionable parenting decisions uh, were made here. It is, but it's about the redemptive of just bad decisions and full hearts in life. I really cannot say how, enough about the last story in the book. It's called Owls. It was his signature read-aloud story. It is something that I really believe adults should read aloud to each other. Kids don't need to get all the good things in life alone. And find someone you love in this life and read owls out loud to them or someone you care about. And make sure you read the post-its about it, too. It's only six pages, nine minutes to read aloud, people. You got this. Okay, we all have an assignment now. We're going to go home and read owls to someone or a cat or a dog. Cat or dog, you, you know, know. If you to have yourself. A, a plant that you love, you can read to your house plant. I'm saying your house plant would benefit. Yeah. Actually, that would be a great science fair project. I'm, I'm going to read this story to my plant. And... Growth would skyrocket. Yes, totally. Probably from the tears, the salty oh, tears yes. you weep yes. onto. See, you can uh, water your plant. and It's just an all-around great thing to do. Now, your favorite one is not Music of the Swamp. It's Wolf Whistle, right? You know, actually, I've always said that Lightning Song was oh. my favorite. And yesterday, I pulled Wolf Whistle off the shelf and started paging through it. And then I something took hold of me, and I read the whole thing. <laughs> and then i like, oh, and I'll look at a Lightning Song now. And it just... It didn't hit me the same way. Wolf Whistle, it, right now, is, yeah. is I'm going to call it my favorite. I love that. So Wolf Whistle is a fictionalized version of the story of Emmett Till's murder. And as you heard in the beginning, Lewis Norton, because I call him, you know, mm-hmm. very formal. Proper. First, last name all the time. He was from Itabina, which is 20 miles away from Money, where Emmett Till was killed. He was a couple of years older than mm-hmm. Emmett Till, and his murder affected him deeply his entire life but he didn't feel like it was his story to tell you know he's a white kid in from Mississippi it is absolutely does not belong to him Uh, I read this uh, this interview I was going to read a little bit of it he said you know he was horrified for it about it he was so shocked nobody spoke about it but partially his father was friends with the murderers he was friends with it, one of them in particular. So he really felt that he had no business telling the story. This is what he said. Finally, it came to me that I had a story, the white trash version of the Emmett Till murder. I had the story of the people who were on the periphery of this terrible thing, who didn't know what was going on, didn't quite understand their own culpability in the situation. That was a story I had to write, the murderer story, the family of the murderers, the friends and drinking buddies of the murderers. That's when I knew I could write the story. It was the poor white version. So in one sense, I had every right to write it. So it's just such an interesting perspective about, you know, his grief over this thing and his guilt over it and his feeling of responsibility and culpability and then how he resolved that and and then wrote this beautiful and, I mean, it sounds so wrong to say this book is hilarious, but there are parts where I have had to put the book down and laugh and like <laughs> tears running down my face it it is it's just it does everything it needs to do in the words of another southern treasure laughter through tears is my favorite emotion yes i don't know i just i just love it so i would i want to read 
just the first page. It's just kind of introduces some of the those peripheral characters to the story. When school started in September, Alice Conroy's fourth graders missed their injured classmate, Glenn Gregg. Alice had just graduated from the normal and knew all the latest techniques of modern education. She encouraged the children to talk about Glenn and the accident whenever they wanted to. Alice had come to live with her uncle Runt and to keep house for him since her aunt, aunt Fortunata had moved out. Don't hold back, she told the children, her fourth graders. Ask anything you like. So they said, is he dead? And is he still on fire? And am I going to die? And are we all alone in the world? Her education was already paying off, Alice thought. See how they opened up? See how inquisitive, how willing to reveal their innermost thoughts and feelings? She wished she could call Dr. Dust, her old professor at the Normal, to tell him of her success. Last year, when she cried naked in his arms, he had told her, There is great pain in all true love, Alice, but we don't care, do we? Because it's worth it. He was right, too. Alice knew that. Love was worth anything, everything. No pain was too great in the service of true love. The problem with calling Dr. Dust, though, was that Mrs. Dust always answered the telephone and called Alice a slut in a loud voice and slammed the receiver in her ear. If Mrs. Dust would only be a little forgiving, Alice thought, they might be friends. So does this sound like it's the beginning of a book about Emmett Till? It does not. But Alice's relationship with the children and in particular this kid who's been set on fire Glenn Gregg, his father will end up being the murderer. His father is not a nice man, and actually the kid is on fire because he was trying to light his father on fire because he had been beating on his mother. So if a book with these awful people and characters can also be beautiful and funny, what else can this guy do? He only wrote this handful of books, and, you know, we were robbed, Louisa. We were robbed. We really were. I'm still sad. I I remember writing to a friend the day he died. I was like, why did this guy not split open and tell me? Like, this, the feeling of loss. Yes, because of everything he gave the world as a teacher, as a writer, Mm -hmm. how he was able to redeem what a lot of us are working with. So you could listen to us talk about him, and we would all day, but better yet, you should go check out one of his books. You should probably check out one of his books. You can start with the short stories. Absolutely. And actually, my favorite short story is the Sears and Roebuck catalog game, but it's a a great story, and you could start with that or any other story and see see if you like my friend, Lewis Norton, and your friend, Buddy. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.